Well, who's ready for summer 16? Yeah. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and a huge welcome to you. I'm glad that you're here. And to all of our friends who are up in North Durham, a huge shout-out to you as well. Uh, so glad that you're joining us today as, uh, as we kick off this summer series uh, called Summer 16, where we're going to be uh, taking a look at some of the great parables uh, that Jesus told as we find them in the New Testament. I want to start today with a story. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to India as part of a team that was sent to encourage some missionaries and to see the work that these people had invested their lives in. Now, one of the cities that we got to visit while we were there in India was the city of Varanasi, which uh, is on the River Ganges. And here's how Lonely Planet, the website Lonely Planet, describes the city of Varanasi. Brace yourself. You're about to enter one of the most blindingly colorful, unrelentingly chaotic, and unapologetically indiscreet places on earth. Varanasi takes no prisoners. And, and I would echo that. It's true. <laughs> They're not exaggerating. Varanasi is known for a lot of things. It's on the banks of the River Ganges, and it's where the rock bands of the 1970s went to find themselves. Varanasi is a holy city in Hinduism. And it's known for a lot of things, but one of the things that it's known for is its many funeral houses or burning ghats, where the dead bodies of those who are faithful to the Hindu religion are burned, and then the, the ashes of the person who has been cremated are then placed uh, in the river Ganges. And there are huge, enormous festivals that happen every year in Varanasi, and millions upon millions of people come to an already crowded city. Well, when I was there, it was during one of these festival times. It was during one of these times when a religious festival was going on, and everything was amplified in the city of Varanasi. The already crowded streets were overflowing with people, and all of the sights, all of the sounds, and all of the smells were a hundredfold what they were normally. One day, our team was making its way back to our guest house that we were staying at in tuk-tuks. And I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of driving in a tuk-tuk. If you've watched any of the movies, you see them. There's those three-wheeled little kind of, um, you know, moped-type things that you get to ride in. So we squeezed three people into a tuk-tuk, and away we went as, as our team was going. But the drivers were having a lot of trouble getting back to our guest house because all of these shortcuts they would take, all these routes they would take to get back to the guest house, it seemed that they would come across like a major street, and all of the major streets were so jammed with people and with these parades that were going on as part of the religious festivals that went on 24-7 that they couldn't get through. So they'd have to turn around the tuk-tuk and try another way. Well, it seemed after an awfully long time that finally we made it back to our guest house. Well, as the team leader, one of the jobs that I had was I was to pay the drivers. So I pulled out the amount of rupees that we had agreed upon, because you always agree upon price before you get in the tuk-tuk. Everyone knows that. Well, the guys started arguing with me. The, the couple or three drivers that we had, they were arguing with me because they said, no, 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 you have to pay more. 
And you have to pay more because we had to drive further. And I said, well, that's not my fault that you had to drive further. And they said, well, we, it took so much more effort and we had to go this route and that route. We used more gasoline. You know, it took us longer time. And, and so we're bantering and we're arguing back and forth. Now, I didn't think too much of this because that's just normal in that culture. Right? You, you always barter. You always haggle. You always do that. And so we were going back. They were asking for huge high price, and I was going for sort of normal price, and they would come down a little bit, and I would come up a little bit, until finally I just had enough of this. I was, I was tired. I was exhausted from a whole day. And what I did was I finally you know, made my last offer, and I pulled out all of my money, and I counted it out, and I placed my money down on the seat of one of, of the tuk-tuks, and I said, that's it, final price, and I walked away. So I walked away, and I just went in just a short distance into our guest house. Well, suddenly our whole team sprung into action. And they're like all over me, and they're turning me. They're spinning me around, and one guy's pulling my shirt up. And I'm like, what is going, what's going on? Get off me. Like, I'm trying to get my team off me. So finally I said, stop, everybody, stop. What are you guys doing? So one of the team members told me that right after I had taken the money and put it down and walked away, that he saw one of the, the drivers pull out a knife. And he lunged at me with the knife. And they thought that I'd been stabbed in the back. And so when I went inside, they were looking for puncture wounds. They were looking for blood on my shirt. They, you know, they were looking for something, some sign that I had been stabbed. Well, thank God I hadn't been stabbed. And that night, we sat around and we talked. And we used that story as something to remind us that we serve a good God. A God who protects, a God who watches over us. And as a team, our faith was bolstered and, and lifted up because of that episode that day. Don't you just love a good story? Like, isn't there power in stories? Don't stories have a great way of drawing us in to the action? Don't, don't we have a way of picturing, even as I was telling that story, maybe some of you were picturing in your minds the scenery. Some of you have been to India and others haven't, but maybe in your mind you were starting to like, picture it in and as you hear the story unfold, you're wondering, like, what would I have done if I was there? Would I have done something different? You know, what I, how would I have reacted? And that's one of the amazing things about stories. Well, today we're kicking off this Summer 16 series on the parables of Jesus. And we're going to look at a number of parables throughout the summer. We're going to look at some of the really great parables throughout the summer. And we have some amazing guest speakers coming, and that'll be really great for us to hear from them as they tell us some of the stories of Jesus. And so today I want to set the stage for the summer by first of all talking about what are parables. Each Guest speaker that comes in is going to talk to you about a parable that Jesus told. But what are parables? What are we to understand about parables? How are we to handle parables? What do we, what do we understand? What do we think about parables? What can we not assume? What can we assume when it comes to this whole area of parables? Well, parables in their very simplest form are stories. Stories that are used to make a point. They're like illustrations. Oftentimes you hear preachers here on this stage and in other stages making, using an illustration. An illustration is just used to support a point that someone is trying to make. And by telling you a story, the point takes on new life. It becomes clearer. 
It becomes more understandable. You get what the speaker is really talking about. And in their very simplest forms, that's what parables are. Parables were, were used widely in Jesus' day by rabbis, by all of the multitude of rabbis who were going around preaching and teaching about the Word of God and about the kingdom of God. In fact, one famous rabbi said this. He said, a teaching without a parable is like a basket without handles. You just, you just can't, you can't get a grip on it. And in an oral culture, like in Jesus' day, parables were the stories, real or not, that drew people into the teaching. They were key parts of the teaching that helped to clarify what the teacher was trying to get across. And Jesus, like all great teachers, employed parables throughout his public ministry. And someone's done a survey, and you can look through the New Testament, especially the gospel accounts, and about one-third of Jesus' teachings include parables. So Jesus thought parables were very, very important. Stories that just give you a handle to grip the basket. Well, for Jesus, there were three main subjects that he talked about, that he told stories about, that he made up stories about, that he told parables about. The first was about, you know, God's love. Jesus often used parables to help people understand what God's love is like. Jesus also told stories and used parables to talk about one's neighbor. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute, about why that was so important for Jesus to tell stories about your neighbor and who's in your neighborhood. And the third one, and probably the most dominant theme that Jesus teaches about when he teaches using parables is about the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God in a person's life and in a community. What does it look like? And Jesus would often tell parables that really helped people understand what the kingdom of God really looks like. Now, you need to remember and you need to understand that parables were not allegories. They were stories. They were almost always made up, and they were almost always intended to be taken literally. Parables always had, you know, elements that were very, very familiar. But the master teachers, the brilliant teachers like Jesus, would always come to near the end of a parable or a story, and they would always put a twist in there, something that would shock you, something that would surprise you, something that was totally unexpected. It's almost like Jesus is leading you down a garden path, and then suddenly, oh, he just takes a sharp turn, and you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming in the story. I, I thought this was going to happen in the story, and something completely opposite happens in the story. And Jesus would do that all the time. But as we look at parables throughout the summer, there's two main things that you must, you just have to remember as we talk about parables. The first one is this. Parables are always used to make the teaching clearer. Parables are always used to make the teaching clearer. Now, I know some of you are sitting and going, oh, wait a second, I remember sometimes in the scripture where, you know, the, where the disciples would come to Jesus and say, what are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus would, would help clarify the parables. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But the point of the parables is not to trip up the audience. The point of the parable is like a preacher using an illustration. The point is not to try and bring the Scripture to light and then say suddenly, let me tell you a story that completely confuses you, and you're like, what on earth is he talking about? 
Parables were not used that way. Parables were always used to make the teaching clearer. The second main thing that you have to remember week by week as we go through this is this, that you're always supposed to find yourself in the parable. You're to find yourself. You're supposed to identify yourself in the parable. You're supposed to identify with a character or with a circumstance or with a situation in the parable. You're always supposed to transport yourself into the middle of the parables. And the master parable tellers like Jesus, the master storytellers, would have this incredible way of actually taking you and pulling you and drawing you right into the story. But then comes the twist. And we'll see a number of twists that happen. And Jesus used these familiar ideas and familiar concepts in the middle of his parables. It's almost like, like Jesus you know, tells a joke. You know how when, when some jokes start, you know, you're like, oh, I know where this is going. So like a rabbi, a priest, and a pastor walk into a bar. And you're like, oh, okay, great. So the rabbi, the priest, and then it's like, oh, here comes the punchline. See, parables didn't really need to be explained. They were kind of like jokes like that. They weren't jokes, but they were stories like that. When Jesus would say, this happened or this happened, suppose there's a man going out to sow a seed. Everybody's like, oh, okay, I know this. I know what this thing is all about. I get this one. We've seen this a hundred times. And so that's the familiarity of parables. But the master teachers always make a twist and catch you off guard in the middle of the parable. Now, I know some of you are saying, hey, Dave, how can we be sure that these parables are supposed to clarify things? Let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 to 16 for just a moment. The disciples came to Jesus. Jesus had just been teaching. Why do you speak in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Now, if you're an underliner in your Bible, you need to underline that. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, you already get it. You already are in relationship with me. You already are my disciples. And the stuff about the kingdom, you already get. But I use parables because the masses of people who are out there, they don't get it. And so I have to use parables to make it clear. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Jesus is using very common language here with his disciples. Now we read this and it sounds confusing to us. But let me, let me just tell you the way I think Jesus, if he was going to teach this today, here's how Jesus would say this in modern day language to us. Look, he would say, the reason that I use illustrations, the reason that I use stories, the reason that I use parables... It's because the prophet Isaiah already prophesied that people have wandered away from God. 
They have turned a relationship with God into a religion, a religion of do's and don'ts, a system where if you just obey the rules, you'll think that everything is okay between you and God. And what they're doing is they're actually slowly over time closing their eyes and covering their ears. So Jesus says, when I teach in parables, when I show them through parables, they see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. And the thing with parables is, parables are designed to help people on the very first level because they are these common everyday stories. They're first of all designed to help people see and hear. But the parable is always meant to bring you further than that. It's supposed to force you as you find yourself in the story. And as the story makes the teaching so much clearer that you're supposed to move from seeing to seeing and from hearing to hearing. And that's Jesus' whole point here. That's what Jesus is trying to say to the disciples about the kingdom of God. It's with the heart that we truly see and see. And it's with the heart that we truly hear and hear what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus goes on in this Matthew chapter 13 passage, and in verses 34 and 35, he says this, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, making it clearer and helping them to find themselves in the story so that they can see and see and hear and hear. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And again, if you're an underline or a highlighter, I would encourage you to underline or highlight the word hidden. Jesus came to reveal the hidden stuff about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying here. I use parables not to make it, you know, more difficult for people. I use parables so that they're forced to see and to hear and to see and to hear. And I'm trying to reveal the hidden things of God. So every parable has a twist. And the twist is designed to reveal the key or the secret that the teacher is trying to get across. What is the rabbi really driving at? What makes this person's teaching so different than the other person's teaching who was here last weekend? What is their teaching really all about? What changes are they asking me to make? And when you look at the twist that the rabbi brings to the story, it begins to reveal to you what the secret is or the key is to understanding the teaching. Now, with Jesus, I'll let you in on a little secret to start with. Jesus' twist almost always is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is almost always trying to reveal what does the reign and rule of God look like in a person or in a community, whether it be a church or a family or a nation. You see, most people in Jesus' day were coming with preconceived ideas about the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus had to teach on the kingdom of God all the time. It's why Jesus had to open their ears and open their eyes so that they could see and see and hear and hear about the kingdom of God. See, some people thought that the kingdom of God was going to be a military power, that they thought that the Messiah, that if Jesus was truly God's chosen one, was going to show up and he was going to change everything at the poles. 
Jesus was going to convince everyone by his strategies and by, his, by all, of the, uh, all of his policies that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And if you just voted for Jesus and Jesus got an overwhelming majority, Jesus would change everything. But Jesus says, no, it's not about politics. Others were thinking that the Messiah would come and that he would be a military force, a military power. They were living in an occupied territory at that time, and many of them were looking for salvation through the overthrow of Rome. And they were looking for someone to come and establish military power. And Jesus is saying, let me tell you about the kingdom of God. It's not about military power. And so Jesus would often reveal this in his stories. Other people thought that it was about economics, that they were going to get back to the good old days of King David and King Solomon when everybody was wealthy, and that, that somehow Jesus, through some new, no-money-down special scheme, was going to help everybody get rich. And Jesus is saying, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. It's not about getting rich, folks. And so Jesus has to dispel all of these presuppositions and preconceived ideas about the kingdom of God. And he does it when he uses parables and he reveals something about the kingdom. Bringing clarity. Bringing clarity to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Identifying yourself in Jesus' teaching so that you'll understand how to bring the kingdom of God to reality in your own life and in your own community, whether it be a family, a church, or a nation. So that's what we need to know about parables. That's to save every other preacher coming and talking about what parables mean. And as they talk about parables, I know you're going to be sitting there going, okay. How does this clarify my understanding of the kingdom of God? And how do I find myself in the parable? You're going to be looking and you're going to be waiting. And you're going to be watching and saying, am I this character? Or am I that character? Am I in this circumstance or that circumstance? And if I am that character, or if I am in that circumstances, how does it help me live out the kingdom of God in my life? So today I want to talk about a parable that's really, really familiar to a lot of people. This parable is so familiar that this parable has actually worked its way in to our modern-day English language. It's a parable of the Good Samaritan. And so if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10. Good Samaritan account is found from verses 25 down to, I think, about 36 or so, in around there. 37, sorry, down to 37. But I want to warn you, Jesus always brings a twist. And so this may not be your Sunday school version of the Good Samaritan. So I just want to warn you. So if you really love your Sunday school version and you want that memory to remain intact for the rest of your life, you should probably leave. Because <laughs> Jesus goes way beyond the Sunday school version. Way beyond the Sunday school version. So here's the context. Let's look first at the context of this. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, we read this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Now, there's a number of translations 
And one of the translations would say that this is a lawyer. And, and that's okay. That's an okay translation. But this person is not a lawyer sort of in the court kind of sense, the courtroom kind of sense. He's a person who is a scribe. Scribe is a good definition of what this person is. Scribes were people who would help copy the, uh, the, the Old Testament for future generations and also, you know, to proliferate copies of the, the Jewish scriptures. And because they were used in the copying of it, they became actually experts in what was the first five books, the Torah, the law. And so this guy is an expert. This guy is a, a copy editor of the law of God. And he has studied the law his whole life. He has studied the law. And he is very zealous for the Old Testament. He knows it inside and out. He likely has, as we look at what uh, other rabbis would, would write in Jesus' period, this guy conceivably could have the first five books of the Old Testament off by heart. Know the whole thing off by heart. Not a stretch of the imagination at all. But this guy clearly knows his Old Testament, and particularly those first five books, the Torah. And the question that he asks is very, very significant, because in our evangelical circles, we think, oh, well, what's the question he's asking? Well, the question that he's asking, I would just say to him, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But that's not the question that he's asking. When he says, teacher, what must I do to, etern to inherit eternal life? It's not a salvation question that the guy is asking. See, he already believes he has salvation. He is a Jew. He is an Orthodox Jew. He is living according to the laws and the customs of Moses as taught in the Old Testament. And he believes because of his heritage and because of his lifestyle and because of his worship and because of his religion that he already is in good standing with God. So this is not a salvation question that the guy is asking. The guy is asking a question like this. What do I have to do to get meaning in life? What do I have to do to live as a righteous person? In other words, Jesus, what do I have to do to see the kingdom of God lived out in my life? How does the reign and the rule of God get worked out in my life? Well, in typical, very typical rabbinic fashion, Jesus answers this question with a question. Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? Like, you're an expert in the law. You copy the thing all day long. You know it off by heart. What's written in the law? Well, the scribe quotes, and it's a great answer, he quotes from two well-known Old Testament passages, the first one in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and the second one in Leviticus chapter 19. Deuteronomy 6 is an extended passage that every Jew took absolutely literally. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then it goes on to talk about, you know, putting things on the doorposts and putting them on your forehead and carrying them around and, you know, and, you know, singing and talking with your children. And then he says, and Leviticus 19 talks about that you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus commends him. And he says, you know what? If you're doing that, if you're seeking to love God with all that you are, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you're seeking to love your neighbors yourself, you're on the path, my friend. You are doing really well. But that's not really what the guy wants to know. It's not really what the guy wants to hear. So the scripture says this in Luke 10, 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? The, see, loving God was no problem. He felt he had that down. 
But who is my neighbor, Jesus? I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor. See, what you and I don't get, what was going on in the first century when Jesus was alive and when Jesus was teaching this stuff, is that this is one of the theological hot buttons of the day. When the guy says, but who is my neighbor? It's like today saying, well, what about LGBTQ? Let's talk about that, Jesus. It's exactly the same. It's a theological hot button. It is designed to get everybody to go, ooh, let's see what Jesus says about this one. So the guy wants to justify himself. See, because as a scribe, he has a certain position. And there was all kinds of teaching going on in the day that Jesus lived. Some people said, well, your neighbor is actually defined by proximity. So whoever is close by you, so if you're at the back of the auditorium, you're, far, you're further away, you're actually not my neighbors. Only the people up at the front are my neighbors. So anything that talks about neighbor only applies to these people, doesn't apply to you. Other people say, yeah, it's proximity, but it's not physical proximity, it's relational proximity. So like family are neighbors, and the people who live next door that I see all the time are neighbors. The people that I'm in relationship, the people I work with, the people I hang out with are my neighbors, but the people I don't know aren't really my neighbors. And then others said, no, 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 it's not that, it's about the alien and the foreign. And there was raging, raging, raging debate going on about all of this. So in response to this theological bomb that the guy drops in the middle of a meeting in this public setting, Jesus tells a parable. The master teacher steps up and he tells a, ter a parable. Terrible. A parable. He tells a really good parable. It was an exceptional parable. And it's found in verses 30 to 35. Now, we're not going to read the whole thing here. I'm assuming a lot of you know. But here's it. In case you don't know the parable of the Good Samaritan, here's roughly the Dave Adams version of what happens. Jesus says, there's a guy, and he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 3,000-foot drop, and it's about mm, 10, 12 kilometers. And the road is very, very narrow at times, and there are caves along the way, and the pathway is so narrow that oftentimes people will be robbed. Well, sure enough, this guy is going down, and he is set upon by bandits, and first of all, they beat him, they strip him, and they leave him half dead. Well, down the road comes a priest, and the priest sees the guy who is beat up, and the priest looks, and he walks by on the other side, and he doesn't do anything. And the next guy to come down the road is a Levite. And the Levite comes down and he sees the guy and he's like, ooh, and he goes around on the other side. The next person down the road is a Samaritan. And the Samaritan sees the guy and he goes down and he bandages his wounds, he pours oil on him, he puts him up on his donkey, he takes him to the closest inn and he says to the innkeeper, look, look after this guy, nurse him back to health and I'll give you two days wages and if that's not enough, the next time I come back, I'll settle the bill. That's the story. And the Sunday school version that I remember and that most of you remember is, as we were taught this, and I wish I had my flannel board up here but I don't have my flannel board, but if we had the flannel board, we could have the guy stuck on here, right? The poor guy, and he's lying down, and he's kind of, you know, half, half naked, and he's got blood coming out of him. And then along comes the priest, and he's like, ooh, got to go around, and we put him around. And next comes the Levite, and we're like, oh, he's got to go around too. And then we're like, oh, here comes the Samaritan. Go, oh, yay, the Samaritan, he's a good guy. And then he helps him, right? And we're like, how could the priest and the Levite do that? Like, where's the compassion in their hearts? Like... So 
Little Davy, out you go this week and you just be nice to everybody, okay? a boy. Is that what Jesus is saying? An answer to who is my neighbor? We need to get context to understand this really properly. This is why we need to be students of the Word of God. You can't possibly read this parable. You can't possibly engage with this parable if you don't know something about three groups of people. And there are three groups of people that you need to really understand some things about. The first group of this, Sadducees. Who are Sadducees in the Scripture? Well, Sadducees are the descendants of Aaron and of the, the tribe of Levi, and they're the Levites. And the Sadducees were the priests and the Levites, two different classes. Those who could directly connect themselves with Aaron, who was the first, sort of, you know, along with Moses, the priest, if they could, in their family line, directly connect themselves, then they were the priests. If you couldn't directly connect yourself, but you were from the tribe, then you were the Levites, and you had temple duties that you had to perform. Your job was like my job. You were a pastor in the church. You were a pastor at the temple. And there were hundreds of them, thousands of them. And you need to know a number of things about what they believed. These guys were Torah literalists. They took the first five books of the Old Testament literally on every, every aspect that was in there. If the Torah says something, you just did it the way it said. No real room for interpretation, no room for uh, negotiation around it, but the Torah had to be taken literally. And these guys made up the vast majority of the ruling body in Jesus' day called the Sanhedrin. So these guys are not very flexible people at all. So, for example, one of the things that they would take very, very literally is this, found in Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 1, where it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. We'll come back to that in just a second. A very important verse. The second group that you need to understand some things about are the Pharisees. Pharisees were kind of like well, the back-to-the-Bible people. In the intertestamental period, so when Malachi ends and when Matthew starts, there's this, you know, there's this period of time, this long hundreds of years time, when we don't have any sort of recorded scripture. We have lots of recorded history. But one of the groups that sprung up during that time and became quite prominent in Jesus' days were Pharisees. These were respected people because these people were really trying to follow God. They were really trying to usher in the kingdom of God. And not only did they take the Torah literally, but, but they also respected the oral traditions of the teachers who had gone before them. So they weren't complete literalists. They would look at an Old Testament passage and they would say, hey, what have people done for thousands of years? How have they interpreted this? And let's see if we can really understand this and put it into our context today to see how things really are going. That's the Pharisees. And they had this one important principle Nothing was more important than life. Nothing was more important than life. All things should be interpreted and understood through the importance of life. 
So if there's a, an Old Testament law that seems to say that I'm you know, not supposed to do something in certain circumstances, let's see what the teachers before have talked about and what they have done, and then let's understand how that applies today. But if a life is in danger, oh my goodness, a life is in danger, we must help out. We'll deal with the theology afterwards. So that's kind of their stance. And then the last group are the Samaritans. These are half-breeds. They are hated half-breeds. Both the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other. They absolutely hate each other. But the Samaritans are much like the Sadducees. They are traditionalists. They are literalists when it comes to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Torah. So now let's look again at the parable with an understanding of who the three groups are, because these people, we find them in the parable. We find two of the groups, actually. The third one is not there. So Jesus tells a story. And again, we must understand, and we must assume, and I think rightly assume, as everyone else would have assumed, that the guy who is attacked and beaten is a Jew. He's coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I mean, maybe he wasn't a Jew, but in all likelihood, like it's a 99% that everybody assumes in Jesus' story that this guy is a Jew. So there's, there's a Jew, and Jesus says they leave him half dead. Very important words in Jesus' parable. This means that the guy is almost dead, but not quite. But certainly he's bleeding. Certainly he's bruised. Certainly, you know, he, there is some bodily fluids coming out of him. Why is that important? Because now anyone who touches him is ceremonially unclean. This is the point. The person who helps this person becomes ceremonially unclean. So the first guy who walks down the road is a priest. Who are the priests? Which one of the three groups do the priests fall into? Sadducees. They are the Sadducees. They are the priestly ones. He, is, he, he finds you know, his connection back to Aaron and to the tribe of Levi. And he walks down. In fact, the first two guys are both Sadducees. So let's deal with them together. So the first two are walking down. And as they walk down, what do they see? A half-dead person. No, they see a ceremonially unclean person is what they see. And so their faith, their theology tells them, you can't touch him. Leviticus 21 says, you can't go help him. I don't care what you feel inside. I don't care what's going on. I don't care if he's moaning and groaning. The guy's bleeding. He's unclean. And you're a priest. You can't go and help the guy. So you have to ignore. You have to go on by. See, it's not because they were jerks. That's not why they didn't stop. It was their theology that stopped them from stopping. Now, I'll bet you $100 that if we interview everybody in the crowd in Jesus' day, it's a safe bet because they're all gone, but I bet you that every single one of them was expecting the next guy down the road to be a Pharisee. See, because they're like, oh, I see what you're doing here, Jesus. I see what's going on. Next guy down's a Pharisee. See, he's not a literalist. And if the Pharisee stops and helps the guy, we know what side Jesus is on. Jesus is taking sides. 
So Jesus says, and then down comes the road is a Samaritan. And they're all like, whoa, didn't see that coming. Nobody saw that coming. Absolutely no one in the crowd saw that coming. The hated Samaritan? What? What's he doing in the story, Jesus? And if I'm to find myself in the story, I tell you what, I'm not the Samaritan. I'm just going to tell you that right straight up, Jesus. I don't care where this story goes. The Samaritan, we know what he does. He helps. Now, the interesting thing is this. The Samaritans were literalists too. But the guy chooses to go beyond his theology and do what is right in the circumstance. Not what's religious in the circumstance. What is right in the circumstance. And he would have to go through a a purification process that was extended, that meant he would be outside of, uh, of his camp, outside of his family, and uh, wouldn't have relationships with his wife or anything. All kinds of purification things you have to do. And the guy is saying, I'm willing to do all of that because the right thing to do is to stop and help this guy. And that's the twist that Jesus brings. Now, Jesus then says in Luke 10, 36, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So now Jesus asks the question in response to the scribe's question. Jesus has now invited this man to put himself into the story. To see things from the victim's standpoint. See, see... The guy asked the question, who is my neighbor? Because he's helped. He wants Jesus to give him a definition. You define who out there is my neighbor, Jesus. I want to know what definition for all of these people is my neighbor. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's backing him into a corner. Jesus is saying, it's not about them. It's actually about you. You're supposed to be the neighbor. That's the whole point. Don't define other people by their color of their skin or their ethnicity. Don't define other people by, by what religion they are. Don't, don't define them by how they look or how wealthy they are or aren't are. That's not how you choose neighbors. What you do is you become a neighbor and you become the person who lives out what it means to be full of the kingdom of God. Look at Luke 10, 37 to see how deep the hatred runs. Jesus asked the question, which one of the three do you think is the neighbor? Well, it's an obvious question, right? Everybody gets it. But the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even say Samaritan. He can't say it. His religion, his theology, his bias, his prejudice won't let him even say the word the Samaritan. But he says, I suppose the one who helped out, that one, is the one who is the true neighbor. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. See, this is Jesus' final answer to the original question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do, Jesus, to live out the kingdom of God in my life? What do I need to do to be a righteous person? How do I find meaning and significance as I seek to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And Jesus says, become a neighbor. Not to find who's your neighbor so you can pick and choose who you're going to help and not help, but you become the neighbor. And Jesus turned the teaching of his day right side up with this simple 
simple story in just five verses. The twist, the secret of the kingdom of God. The key to living by kingdom values is to be a neighbor to anyone who has need. It's not about running others through your filter or some set of criteria that you and I come up with to see if they actually qualify for us to behave as neighbors. You, me, I become the neighbor. Any physical need, any emotional need, any spiritual need, we need to seek to meet it from the perspective of neighbor because we are the neighbor in the kingdom of God. We can never hide behind our theology. We can never hide behind our national pride. We can never hide behind any form of prejudice to see someone else as unworthy of our help. See, Jesus' whole point is that the kingdom of, in the kingdom of God, we're the neighbor. It's us. We're the neighbor, not someone else. It's not about them. It's all about us and how we think and what our attitudes are like as people who are part of the kingdom of God. I'm going to invite the team to come up and to lead us in a closing worship song. But I wonder, you know, as Jesus spelled out in the Sermon on the Mount, where he said we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, I wonder how many went home that day who were in the crowd when Jesus told this simple story and had to make things right with other people. I wonder how many of them went home and said, man, I got to look at my neighbor next door a whole lot differently than I have been looking at him. Yeah, he's a physical neighbor in that he lives next door. But you know what? If I kind of use my theology a little bit and kind of change my theology a little bit, I can actually exclude him as my neighbor. No, Jesus is saying, no, you can't do that. You've got to be the neighbor. You've got to be the one that goes and becomes the neighbor. I wonder how many had to repent of their prejudice that day. I wonder how many walked away from Jesus' teaching with their heads hung low, disappointed, because they had finally seen and heard and seen and heard, but they didn't like what they saw, and they certainly didn't like what they heard. And so the challenge to you and I today, as people who would say this what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's not a question for a lot of people in this room about salvation. For some of you, it is about salvation. And some of you today need to wrestle with who Jesus is and, and this master teacher preacher who went to the cross for you. Some of you need to give your life to him today. But so many of you in this room need to wrestle with what it means to live out the kingdom of God and what it means to truly be a neighbor. And so I want to pray for us that God would give us the strength. But beyond the strength, the courage to follow the teachings of Jesus and to live out as neighbors in a world that so desperately, desperately needs to see people live out the kingdom values. So let's pray together. Let's stand and I'll lead you in prayer. So Jesus, thank you for your teaching. It's, it's incredible in so many ways. And so, Lord, we would just humbly ask that you would help us to live this out on a daily basis. Help me, help us to be a neighbor. Help us to look at people now through new eyes. Help us to see people as you see them. 
And may you give us uh, the strength and the courage to do what you're calling us to do in your name. Amen.